As we go to open God's word together, let's ask him to bless it to us. Let us pray. Father in heaven, great peace have those who love your law, and nothing can make them stumble. So let our cry come before you, O Lord, and give us understanding according to your word. Let our plea come before you and deliver us according to your word. Our lips will pour forth praise, for you teach us your statutes. Our tongues will sing of your word, for all your commandments are right. And hear us, for we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. And please turn with me in God's word to the book of Genesis, chapter 49. Genesis chapter 49, and we're going to begin our reading at verse 29. If you're using the Pew Bible, you'll find that in page 54 of most of the Pew Bibles. Genesis is the first book of the Bible, and so we're going to pick up our reading after Jacob's blessing of, the, of his sons, and so we're going to begin our reading at verse 29 of chapter 49, and we're going to read through the end of the book of Genesis. And consider what this has to teach us about the providence of God. So Genesis 49, beginning at verse 29, and let's pay careful attention, for this is God's own word. Then he, that is Jacob, commanded them and said to them, I am to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field at Machpelah, to the east of Mamre in the land of Canaan which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. There they buried Abraham and Sarah, his wife. There they buried Isaac and Rebekah, his wife. And there I buried Leah. The field and the cave that is in it were bought from the Hittites. When Jacob finished commanding his sons, he drew up his feet into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. Then Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. And Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed Israel. Forty days were required for it, for that is how many are required for embalming. And the Egyptians wept for him seventy days. And when the days of weeping for him were past, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh, saying, If now I have found favor in your eyes, please speak in the ears of Pharaoh, saying, My father made me swear, saying, I am about to die in my tomb that I hewed out for myself in the land of Canaan. There you shall bury me. Now, therefore, let me please go up and bury my father, then I will return. And Pharaoh answered, Go up and bury your father as he made you swear. So Joseph went up to bury his father. With him went up all the servants of Pharaoh the elders of his household and all the elders of the land of Egypt, as well as all the household of Joseph, his brothers, and his father's household. Only their children, their flocks, and their herds were left in the land of Goshen. And there went up with him both chariots and horsemen. It was a very great company. When they came to the threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond the Jordan, they lamented there with a very great and grievous lamentation. And he made a mourning for his father seven days. When the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning on the threshing floor of Atad, they said, This is a grievous mourning by the Egyptians. Therefore the place was named Abel Mitzrayim. It is beyond the Jordan. Thus his sons did for him as he commanded them. For his sons carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the field at Machpelah, 
to the east of Mamre, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. After he had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt with his brothers and all who had gone up with him to bury his father. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear, I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. So Joseph remained in Egypt, he and his father's house. Joseph lived 110 years. And Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation. The children of also Machir, the son of Manasseh, were counted as Joseph's own. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die. But God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died being 110 years old. They embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. Thus far the reading of God's word, may he bless it to us. Um, Of course, we read this passage if you're considering the providence of God, uh, chapter 50 is the, one of the go-to verses to consider the providence of God. One of the, the primary verses that we think about when we think about the providence of God is there in chapter 50, verse 20, when Joseph says, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. Um, one of the great reminders that even when people try to work evil, God is capable of working good through it. Um, and so, of course, this is a great passage to go to when we think about the providence of God, Uh, but really the whole book of Genesis is a great book to think about the providence of God, because if we thought of it as a standalone book, it would seem like something of a tragedy, Uh, because in the book, man began in a garden, Uh, man began in perfection, uh, living in fellowship with his God, and where does man end at at the book of Genesis? He ends in a coffin. And if this was an entire book together, we might think of it as a tragedy. Um, But of course, there's reminders throughout even this last part of the book of Genesis that this is not the end of the story. This is just the end of the beginning of the story. Uh, That it teaches us to look beyond itself to what God has planned to do and promised to do for his people. And in that sense, this whole book and the whole of this closing episode in the history of God's people, can serve to teach us something about providence. Uh, That God has a plan. Whatever is going on in the world, God is working to the good of those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. Uh, That God is working providentially in the world to bring about good purposes for His people. And the book of Genesis is looking beyond itself to what comes next. 
That really is the whole story of the Old Testament, looking beyond itself to what comes next. Um, It's looking to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, uh, who fulfills the plans that God has made and teaches us to look to him when we're in any doubt about whether God's plans are going well or working out uh, the way we hope they will. Um, The Lord Jesus Christ is the great testimony of God's ability to take what people mean for evil and turn it to good and to keep alive many who otherwise would have died in their sins. And so we want to think about providence and think particularly about the ending of this book and what it has to teach us about God's plans and God's purposes. And so as we look at this book that looks beyond itself uh, at, at its ending, Uh, We want to think about what does it look beyond itself and teach us as we think about this book and we think about God's providence. Um, Here we have at the end of the book of Genesis, I think, first glimpses of fulfillment. Glimpses of what God promises he will do for his people. And we should meditate on the glimpses of fulfillment that we have here. Next, we want to look at guidance for living. Uh, How are we to live this side of the fulfillment of promises? Uh, especially when things seem to go badly. What guidance for living can this book give us? And then finally, our grounds for hope. Um, It might seem a somber text with all of these deaths, but they all die in hope. And we want to think about the grounds for hope that they show even at the end of life. So glimpses of fulfillment, guidance for living, and grounds for hope is what we want to look at as Genesis ends and looks beyond itself to God's purposes and promises. We see glimpses of fulfillment at the end of this book. Um, The first glimpse of fulfillment we have is really a wonderful picture of the Exodus. Um, It's hard not to compare what happens as they all go out to bury Jacob uh, with the Exodus that will finally come uh, when God's people are released from slavery in Egypt. Uh, There is a wonderful Exodus in this book to go down to Canaan as the promised people But it's a very different kind of exodus than we'll see later. Um, It's a wonderful exodus that points out not only will God's people return to Canaan, but about another purpose that God has to gather the whole world into the one people of God. And I I think the burial of Jacob is a beautiful picture of that fulfillment. A reminder that God's promised land was the home of his people and nowhere else. Uh, we're reminded in this passage that there was only one piece of property that the, the patriarchal family owned in the promised land, and it was a burial plot. It was the only piece of Canaan they ever owned. Um, and it was bought by Abraham to be a burying place for his people. And Jacob reminds us that Abraham and his wife had been buried there, and that Isaac and his wife had been buried there, and that Jacob had buried his wife Leah there. And that that's where Jacob wanted to be buried. Um, They wanted to be buried in the promised land, the home of God's people. And Jacob dies making his sons swear that he will do this for him. That they will do this for him. That they will bring him back to the one place they own. He dies in Egypt, but that's not home. Um, He knows that that's not home. Uh, Home is in Canaan. That's where God had promised to settle his people. Um, And just before Jacob left to come to Egypt, um, God had said to him, don't be afraid to go. It didn't work out well when when Abraham went to Egypt. 
And then Isaac almost went to Egypt and God had to appear to him and tell him not to go. And so when Jacob's sons appear to him and say, let's all go to Egypt, Jacob understandably says, I'm not sure that's a good idea. Um, and God appeared to Jacob and said, you go, to, don't worry about going to Egypt. You go, you'll, you'll find your son there who you've not had. And Joseph will close your eyes and you'll die in peace there. And that's exactly what we find in this passage. He dies with Joseph's hand closing his eyes and weeping over him. Uh, promising to care for his father and to bury him uh, where he is going to go. It's not surprising that the, the family does this for their father. Um, What's kind of surprising is the Egyptians' reaction to the death of Jacob. Um, We're told they weep for him 70 days. That's a long mourning period. And the longer the mourning period, the more you think of the status of the person who has died. Um, When a pharaoh died, we've seen records that show they wept for a pharaoh 72 days. So for the nation to weep for Jacob this way, is really to show how exalted he was in the eyes of Egypt, how the Lord had lifted him up to be respected in Egypt, almost like a king. Um, he's honored by the Egyptians. He's honored by the request of, that's made to Pharaoh to go and be, be, be buried at home. And he goes with a huge contingent of Egyptian royalty and nobility. Uh, Joseph asks for permission. The permission is given. And not only does Pharaoh give permission to go, but he sends this great entourage. Right In chapter 50, verse 7, we read, went up with him all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his household, and all the elders of the land of Egypt. Um, Verse 9 tells us, and they went up both with him chariots and horsemen, a very great company. And again, it's hard not to think of the Israelites later leaving and the, the chariot and the horsemen that chased after them determined to bring them back to slavery in Egypt. Now they go not with horsemen and chariots pursuing them, but going with them as a kind of honor guard. And this great contingent goes out from Egypt to bury Jacob. And when they come to the land of Canaan, the Canaanites are impressed with this great uh, weeping. And not just the weeping of his family for him, but the grievous lamentation of the Egyptians over him. And so as they come and they move into the promised land and the the Canaanites are are there too, seeing and witnessing and standing by to this this great lamentation. It's it's an amazing contrast, not only with with the exodus that will come later with the coming out of God's people, but what God's whole purpose is in the world is to make one people out of all the kingdoms of the world. Not just out of this family, but of all the kingdoms of the world. To bring the gospel to the ends of the earth. So we see not just a glimpse of what God will do in the exodus, bringing his people back to the promised land. But that greater thing that God is promising to do is to make one people out of all nations. I think it's a wonderful picture here to see, especially knowing what comes next. right? And and thinking about the people reading this, knowing what would come next. To see here Israelites, Egyptians, and Canaanites together. um, All focused on the patriarch who's died. None of them at war with each other. uh, But together in this common purpose. I think it's a picture of that 
that great prophetic promise that's made that all the nations will be drawn together um, by Israel into one people of God. That was the great glimpse the, the prophets would have of, of this great coming together of God's people in the world, Jew and Gentile. Um, Isaiah sixty six twenty we read, And they shall bring all your brothers from all the nations as an offering to the Lord on horses and in chariots and in litters and on mules and on dromedaries to my holy mountain Jerusalem, says the Lord. There's great hope in the prophets of all the people coming to the Lord. And here's this wonderful picture of that. A glimpse of that fulfillment here in the death of Jacob. Not just God caring for his people in the Exodus, but also that great coming together where all people are drawn. What, that vision we have in Psalm 87 of all these people who are born in other places, but wherever they're born, they say this one and that one was born in Zion. They're all natural born citizens of Zion, no matter where they come from. Uh, that picture that's seen in fulfillment in Revelation 7, 9 through 10. After this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation and from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All those nations, all those people saying salvation belongs to our God, the God of us all. Um, it's a wonderful picture of that fulfillment. Uh, the exodus from Egypt that God's people would experience. The coming together of all the nations under the Lord Jesus Christ. And one last picture of fulfillment is the exodus out of this world. Uh, the fact that all of God's people will one day come home. Uh, to the home that's theirs. One of the interesting events as Jacob first met Pharaoh, Pharaoh asked him how old he was. Uh, that was not a dishonorable thing to do in that culture. You wanted to know how old he was so you knew how to honor him. And when he was asked how old he was, he said, the days of my sojourning are this many. Um, when he was asked, how many years have you been alive? He defined the years of his life by the years of his sojourning. Uh, he was a sojourner. He knew he had a home, but he had never been there. He knew he had a home, but it wasn't really his. Even when he was in Canaan, he lived there as a sojourner. Um, it's not until this moment that he actually comes home to the place that they own. And Abraham bought that place saying, this might be the only plot that we own of the promised land, but the Lord has promised to give all of it to my sons, all of it to my descendants. So we may only have a plot here now. We may have nothing more than a tomb in the land now, but there is a day coming when the Lord will give this whole place to us. And this will be the home of our family. Jacob had lived without ever having a home. God's people are looking for a home. And this is a reminder that there is a home to which God's people can come. Uh, we are going home. And we should feel something of that tension as God's people. To be sojourners in this world. 
we don't have a home in this world, really. Um, we, we feel that more sometimes than other times. Uh, but sometimes we look at the world around us and we, we hear how the world thinks about things and acts about things. And we, we say, where am I? I don't recognize this place. I certainly don't belong here. And we're told that Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, they all lived in hope of the place that they did belong to. The heavenly Jerusalem, the heavenly promised land, that city not made with hands, that was really home. And this is a glimpse of that fulfillment, that God's people will one day go home and not live in this world any longer as sojourners, but come to that country that is our homeland. One of the tragedies of seeing all the, the footage coming out of the Ukraine is to see so many people displaced from their homes and to be going into other countries where they really don't have a home. Um, they just want to go home. right? And that should be the desire of God's people. And here's a glimpse of that promise that one day God's people will come home. They will come home in that land that God has prepared for them. And so as we think about what God is doing in history and we think about these glimpses of fulfillment we can see here even in in the midst of death and loss, what should it be a reminder to us of? How should we think about the future? We should have good confidence for the future. Now that's one of the blessings of the doctrine of providence, to know that the almighty everywhere power Almighty, everywhere present power of God is upholding everything, sustaining everything, and moving everything so that there is a future. Right? The future is in the control of our God. And so the Catechism rightly says, what what should the doctrine of providence then do for us? It means that when things aren't going well, we should be patient because God is coming. And when things are going well, we should be thankful that God is doing it. And as we look to the future and wonder what's coming for the people of God, we should have good confidence in the future. We should have good confidence in the future because no, nothing will separate us from the love of our faithful God and Father. Joseph died, or Jacob died in that hope that nothing was going to separate him from the love of his God. Uh, He lived in that hope. He died in that hope. He knew that he was in God's hand. And these glimpses of fulfillment helped him to think about the future and to have good confidence about the future. Go bury me where you buried the other faithful patriarchs who were waiting for the fulfillment of the promise. Put me there so I can join them in waiting for the fulfillment of the promise. You see how he lived in that confidence? And that confidence of the future plan of God. So we see these glimpses of future fulfillment. But how do we live in this time uh, before the fulfillment of the promises? What guidance for living can we learn from this passage? And I'm not talking just sort of about general life tips. But what particular things happened in these events that can give us clues and think about how to live? Um, Well, one of the things that we see immediately is there's a real danger of forgetting to look beyond the here and now to the promises of God. Um, And we see that danger sort of illustrated in Joseph's brothers. Um, Once once Jacob is gone, 
they become very worried. Um, they're worried that they're going to have a Fredo moment in The Godfather 2. I can't help but think of this when I, when I think of this. In that, in that movie, he's crossed his brother, and his brother thinks that he has to be killed, but he doesn't want to kill him so long as their mother is alive. He doesn't want to put his mom through that. Um, so it's a strange kind of kindness that he leaves his brother alive until his mother dies, and then he kills his brother. Um, and that's clearly what Joseph's brothers are worried about. Now that dad's gone, is he still going to be kind to us? Or has he been waiting for dad to go, and now that dad is gone, he's going to exact his revenge on us? You remember there was a lot of reason for Joseph to bear a grudge against his brothers. They had sold him into slavery into Egypt, um, which was almost a sure death sentence for him. So they'd essentially profited off of what should have been his death. And now they came to Egypt and found that he's actually second to Pharaoh in the kingdom. And they fear some kind of retribution. And they forget all of the kindness that he's shown to them. All of the promises of God that have been reiterated in their interactions with Joseph. And we're told even after 17 years of his kindness to them. They're still worried that the promises won't hold. That the forgiveness is not good. Uh, they're afraid that they'll still be punished by Joseph. They're continued, they continue to be haunted by their sins. They continue to be haunted by their sins. They are mindful of the evil that they've done. Now that really comes across in verse 17. Please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. That's pretty much all the words for sin that they can think of. And even though they might have made up the story about their father saying that, I think they feel every inch of the evil they've done. And they're sure that they can't really be forgiven for that. And that it can't really be forgotten. Um, and that's one of the things that can be difficult for living. Our past sins can haunt us. Even sins that are forgiven and forgotten, that we, we hear repeatedly that God is not holding these sins against us anymore. We can be haunted by those sins. It can be hard to live in the reality of forgiven sin. It's hard to really be really thinking that God forgives us. And when we lose sight of that promise, when we lose sight of his fatherly care for us, our conscience accuses us and guilt can entangle us. And fear can consume us. We can be like Joseph's brothers. We can be showed 17 years of kindness and still be worried that the hammer is going to fall in the end. Um, and what do we need when we feel that way? What do we need? We need the kind of comfort that Joseph provides because Joseph has not lost sight of God. Joseph has not lost sight of who God is. He hasn't lost sight of the promises of God. And when his brothers come to him this way, he weeps. Um, and he provides the comfort for them that they need. They fear such a vengeful spirit from him. And he shows them such a forgiving and affirming spirit. What is the first thing that he says to them? Do not be afraid. Uh, he speaks comforting words to him to them, and why does he say they should not be afraid? 
Because if they've lost sight of who God is, Joseph has not lost sight of who God is. Why don't they need to be afraid? Well, first, because Joseph said, am I in the place of God? Am I in the place of God? Um, He knows that forgiveness of sins is God's business. That God is sovereign. And where God has forgiven... What business does Joseph have to withhold forgiveness? Um, This is a wonderful lesson that's difficult for us to learn. Um, That if God forgives sins, that we must forgive sins. We we pray that every time we pray the Lord's Prayer. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. That's easy to pray. It's harder to practice. Um, Because we know what it is to want to hold back forgiveness. Or to say incongruous things like, I'll forgive you, but I can never forget what you've done. Um, Joseph rightly understands to take that kind of attitude is to sit yourself in the place of God. And Joseph says, am I in the place of God? Is it my business to decide whether or not I'm going to forgive sins? If God has forgiven, why would I hold against it? Um, It's a wonderful statement he makes. He's not going to put himself in the place of God. He's saying, God has forgiven you. Uh, God has forgiven you. How can I not forgive you? Um, He's also trusting himself to the care of his faithful heavenly father. He's also essentially saying, if there's a right to be, a wrong to be righted, God will right it. But I'm not God. That's not my business to try to right the wrongs. I'm not in the place of God. That's trusting yourself to the providence of God. That's trusting yourself to the care of your heavenly father. That's not just confessing it, that's living it. And Joseph shows a wonderful understanding of trust in God, uh, both as the forgiver of sins and as the writer of any wrongs. And this is not cheap, right? This is not small things that Joseph has to forgive. They sold him into slavery. And then he went into slavery, and even though he was a good slave, he got thrown into prison. And he spent years in prison. And the guy who he said, remember me when you get out of prison, forgot him when he got out of prison. And he stayed in prison longer. Um, There was great reason for him not to want to forgive his brothers or to hold some things against them. I have a brother. I don't think I could be this gracious to him without God's help. He's got great reason to not forgive, but he does. Um, And he he does that not just because he says, I'm not in the place of God. But he goes on to say, and I don't need to be in the place of God because God knows what he's doing. You guys meant this for evil. But God meant it for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. I don't get sold into slavery. I don't go to prison. I don't meet the right people to go interpret Pharaoh's dream to get the opportunity to tell Pharaoh what's coming, to be given opportunity to be put in charge of the food, to be put in charge of the food so that not only all of Egypt can live, but all the promised, all the people of the promised line would live. You didn't know when you were selling me into slavery, you were saving your own life. God knew when you were selling me into slavery, Joseph, that you were saved, that he was saving your life. Because God knows what he's doing. And even when people mean things for evil, 
God can turn them to good. God has lives he's endeavoring to save. And there have been people who have pointed out, if you ever doubt that that's true, all you have to do is look to the cross of Jesus Christ. It's the most evil thing that was ever done. The crucifixion of the Son of God. And God produced the greatest good through that evil, in spite of the purposes of evil men, for the saving of many lives. Joseph says, I'm not in the place of God, and God doesn't need my help. God knows what he's doing. Um, And so he trusts God's providence to manage things, and he promises not to repay their evil with evil, but to repay their evil with promises of support and comforting words spoken to their heart. Um, He spoke kindly to them. He comforted them. He promised to provide for them and for their little ones. Um, This is guidance for living. This is not just to understand the providence of God, but to apply it, to trust God, to be God, and to do the things that he has promised to do. Um, And Joseph ends with his brothers where he began, don't be afraid. The providence of God is what gives us the greatest reason to not be afraid. Because we have a powerful God and Father who's managing all things who's promised to bring good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose, promises that even the evil he sends us, he will turn to our good. In ways that we can't understand, the ways that we can't sometimes comprehend or see working out in the immediate circumstances of life, we know that it's true because this is who our God is. This is who our God has always been. That's why this passage ends with, with, even though it ends with death, it ends with people who are grounded in hope and who give the grounds for the hope that they have. Uh, What are the grounds for hope that this passage leaves with us? Uh, The first hope is always in the presence of God, that God is with his people, that this God of, of his powerful providential care is always with his people, no matter what comes to them. Um, And Joseph is trusting in the presence of God. It's interesting that the one thing Joseph really wants when he dies uh, is to make sure that when when God visits his people, they carry his bones with them out of the land to Canaan. He doesn't ask to be taken to be buried in Canaan now. He says, go ahead and take me when God visits. Um, It's a very interesting thing that he says. We're told that Joseph lived to be 110 years old. That's significant because the Egyptians regarded that as the ideal age to die. Now, we don't know why they saw that as the ideal age. It might have had to do with mathematics and kind of numerology. Um, But they regarded that as an ideal age to die. And so God was testifying to Egypt that Joseph was an ideal man. Um, Testifying that even by the years of his life before them. Um, They regarded this as an ideal age. Um, He's being presented to them as having lived the ideal life. He sees his children's children to the third generation. That's what God says is a a testimony to the blessedness of his people. Psalm 128.6, that when you see your children's children, he sees his children's children. So he's regarded as blessed before the Egyptians. He's regarded as blessed in the people of God. Um, And in his death, he shows his supreme act of faith 
as his father did. Of all the events in the life of Jacob uh, that are highlighted in um, Hebrews 11, the heroes of the faith, it's at Jacob's death that he said that's the supreme example of his faith, when he blessed Joseph's sons. When he was sure of the blessing that would come to Joseph's sons. That's, that's held up for us as his act of faith, as a hero of the faith in Hebrews 11. And what is the act of faith that Joseph showed that's, that's remarked on in Hebrews 11? It's this, Hebrews eleven twenty two. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. He made mention of the exodus and made provision concerning his bones. He believed both in the presence of the Lord with him and he believed in the coming presence of the Lord. Um, that's what his statement was to his brothers. There's a day of visitation coming. Uh, that's what he holds out the hope for in, in verse 24. Joseph says to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will visit you. And he will bring you up out of this land to the land he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And he made his brothers swear, God will surely visit you. Um, that kind of visitation carries with it the idea that when God visits, the fortunes of his people will be changed. He's saying God will visit and he will transform everything when he does. And that's the hope in which, jo in which Joseph dies. I'm dying here in Egypt, but God is coming to visit his people. And God will surely visit his people. He's promised to do it. Um, and he dies in the certainty that God will keep his promise. And he says, and when God does promise, do what he promised, and come and visits us, take me with you. Take me home. Because God will be with you where you are. And I don't want to be here if God is there. Even dead, I don't want to be here. I don't want my bones to be here in a coffin if God is there. That's a hope in the presence of God. That's a certainty in the visitation of God. God is going to come and everything will change. And take me with you. I even want my bones to go with where you where God goes. He's sure God will visit and change the fortunes of his people. That's why this book is not an, a tragedy in its ending. Even though it, die, it ends with a man in a coffin. That's not where the man ends. That's not where the story ends. He's looking beyond this book to the visitation of God. And that's what God's people are always taught to do. They're taught to look beyond their circumstances to the visitation of God that's coming. Because God was going to come and visit his people in their affliction in Egypt and bring them out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm out of that land of slavery and that iron furnace. But God's people after that are going to be taught to look for another visitation. When God will come and change the fortunes of his people. When in the fullness of time, the Son of God will come, born of a woman, born under the law. God has visited his people and changed their fortunes in the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And what did his servants teach God's people to do after his coming? To look forward to the visitation that's coming. 
God has visited and redeemed his people out of Egypt. God has visited and redeemed his people by the cross of his son. God is going to visit and redeem his people out of this world. And bring in the new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness dwells. And that's the grounds for hope God's people are still to have. That God is providentially moving the whole world to accomplish the purpose he has, which is to bring his people home. To make them whole and bring them home. That's what God's everywhere present almighty power is working in the world. Working towards that day of visitation. That day when Christ comes and makes everything new. When the fortunes of God's people are reversed once and for all and made perfect. And so how else could we live in light of that reality than to be thankful in prosperity? And to be patient in adversity? Because adversity is not forever. And with the future, to have good confidence that nothing can separate us from the love of our faithful God and Father. And that everything is so in his hand that without his will, we can neither move nor be moved. That's the confidence that this book ends with. I hope it's the confidence we take with us into this week. The providential care of God that will not fail has never failed his people, and will certainly not fail us. Amen? Amen. Let us pray together. Father in heaven, how thankful we are for your almighty, ever-present power. We thank you for never failing to uphold your people. And so when we prosper, Lord, may we be thankful for the blessings that you shower upon us. And when we face difficulty and adversity in this world, help us to be patient knowing that you will visit us and restore the fortunes of your people. And therefore, let us have good confidence when we look to the future. Let us not be fearful or lose sight of those promises that you've made, but know that you will always turn every evil you send us to our good um, and that you will bring us home. Uh, Fill us with hope in these promises and help that, that hope to fuel our lives in the week to come of service to you, that we might live with confidence uh, in your name. And hear us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.